listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may be seated. So this morning, we are going to move on to John chapter 11 and If you follow John's chronological order, what is important is that we are only six days away from the crucifixion. That is how close we are in the gospel of John. But many things are actually going to take place over the next six days. Jesus will enter in Jerusalem riding on a colt. He's going to wash those dirty disciples' feet. He'll teach that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's going to talk about the new covenant that he is bringing and the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He'll have one last supper with those disciples. In the garden, Judas will betray him with a kiss. Peter will pledge his allegiance in boldness like no one else, and then we will see him crash and burn as he denies Jesus in three different times. Jesus will be brought before the high priest and Pilate to give an answer for all that he's been doing and saying. He'll then be flogged and humiliated with a purple robe and a crown of thorns. People will then cry out to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And then he will die a horrific death on the cross as a criminal. So last week we were in chapter 11 and everything from 11 to 19 is focused on one thing and one thing only and that is his cross. So this morning I want to invite you to John chapter 12 and This is how we begin, that naturally we are drawn to fight, to protect, and to sacrifice what we love the most. That is just by nature what we will do. In fact, in our natural state, there's going to be often this battle to defend and surrender what you love and what I love the most. And you know what that is? It's you. And it's me. I mean, above all else... You think about yourself more than anybody else. We want to say our spouses, our families, but naturally, we are most concerned about what's important to us and what we love and what we value. In fact, in our most natural state, because of sin, we love ourselves more than anything. That's just our nature. In fact, it's unnatural because of sin to put others first. Our most natural thoughts are about ourselves and what we want and what we like. And so there's this battle that each and every day we face numerous opportunities where this battle is happening whether we realize it or not. And it's a battle, will I fight for myself or will I sacrifice for others? So this morning I hope you'll remember this phrase and we're going to talk about it. that You can fight for yourself or you can sacrifice for others. In fact, you may have a meeting this week and this battle will go on in that meeting. You may have something go on at school between a teacher or some friends. And I promise you, this battle, you will see it in some form or fashion. It might be with your spouse. It might be with your children, a coworker, a friend. It might even be with someone you serve with here at Bethel. But this battle will go on this week in some form or fashion. And it's a choice. Will I fight for myself or will I sacrifice for others? So with that in mind, we begin at verse 1. It says, six days before Passover. And so that's how close we are. So Passover began at sundown 
on Friday night to sundown on Saturday. So most likely what we're about to see is happening on sundown after Saturday because Friday would be a very busy day because that's when you could cook and you could clean, you could do the things you would need to do. But come sundown, you stopped. The things you ate that day were already prepared. So we find ourselves right before, six days before Sabbath, probably on a Saturday night. But remember where Jesus is. Remember what happened in chapter 11. So he raises Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus is dead for four days, decomposing, decaying, and stinking inside a grave until this man, the Son of God, calls his name and he comes out of the grave. Well, we saw there's this council meeting called the Sanhedrin, the highest political and religious leaders of the day, and they decide that Jesus needs to be eliminated, and here's why. Jesus threatens what they love the most, their status, their power, their influence, and their freedom, and they see Jesus as a threat to that, so the threat must be eliminated because you will fight for what you love the most. But Jesus knows it's not yet his time, so he goes off to Ephraim, which is about 15 miles northwest of Jerusalem in case he needs to escape to the desert. Well, after a short time, notice what Jesus does at the end of verse 1. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus goes back to the lion's den where those that want him killed to murder him, he goes back. Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. But notice what's going on in this little town. So they gave a dinner for him there. So there's this celebration, this dinner going on. But let me hit the pause button for a minute to kind of give us some interesting things about this, to take some notes, to give you some homework to go and do. There's three passages you need to know about. Matthew 26, verses 16 to 13. Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. And Luke 7, Verses 36 through 50. So each gospel writer is very unique. They have their own personalities. They also have the way they want to present Jesus. He's the same one, but they want us to see him from different angles. You read through Matthew, it's all about Jesus being the rightful Davidic king. From the beginning, he sets that up. Mark takes a different angle. He wants us to see Jesus as the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah. Luke He wants you to see the man, that he's Lord of the Sabbath. And John, he wants us to see Jesus, that he's actually God. We saw that from the very beginning of the gospel, that he is the Son of God. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels. They are really tight in what they communicate. They follow the same sequence. They record many of like the same experiences. And so what happens is all four gospels share this celebration dinner with one exception. What I want you to do, I want to encourage you to go read those. And you may disagree, and that can be okay. But I believe Matthew, Mark, and John all record the exact same event. Same person, same place, same time. I believe Luke's a little different. I believe Luke, in Luke 7, he records a different Mary in a different place called Galilee. In fact, but it's a very similar experience. You could disagree with me, that'd be okay. But go and read those four accounts and see how they're similar and see how they are different. So this celebration dinner is taking place, John doesn't tell us, 
But if you go read Matthew and Mark, you're told it's in the house of Simon the leper. He was a Pharisee that Jesus heals, and now he's the host. And then it goes on to say, Martha served. And how many times have we seen this? Martha's the doer. I mean, she's the worker bee. If you follow the personality scales of the animals, you know, she's the beaver. I mean, she's going to work. She's going to make sure she is busy making this, this celebration dinner absolutely perfect. She wants the food to taste better than it's ever tasted. She wants everybody to be wowed by the decorations. She wants everybody to be comfortable, and she wants it to be just right. And it says, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Now, Lazarus is Martha and Mary's brother, the one Jesus raised from the dead. And here he is now reclining at this dinner, enjoying himself. But can you imagine the conversations at this dinner? You just have a man that was raised back to life. And I believe everybody wanted to know what that was about. Man, Lazarus, how dark was it? Did you see a light? What did you see? What was going on? I mean, everybody's going to want to know all about Lazarus' experience of watching his dead lungs all of a sudden breathe air. His blood start flowing through dried up veins. His muscles that have given over to decay to all of a sudden be working again. But I've been laughing that now Lazarus really has an experience that hardly few people can top. You know, you all have that friend. Maybe you are that friend, I don't know. That You know, if somebody tells a story and, man, you're just waiting because you got one that's better. Well, you know, you did this, why well, did that? And you know, like, whatever it is, they have one that they're always going to up you on it. Well, Lazarus can now sit back. He can enjoy. He can politely listen to their story. He can just go, <clears throat> yeah, you've been laid in a tomb four days and then been brought back to life. I mean, Lazarus has an experience that very few people in the New Testament that we read about. But look at what happens on a serious note. I want you to see and realize what we are in the presence of. At this celebration dinner, you're in the presence of the resurrection that Lazarus is living proof of who Jesus is. And that's what has the religious leaders up in turmoil. He's walking example of the power that Jesus holds over life and death. That Lazarus is this example. Now, he's this foreshadowing of what is spiritually true and will one day be physically true of all Christians. And so at this celebration dinner for Jesus and Lazarus, but it's also a picture that we sang about of a different supper to come. In Revelation 19, it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where all believers will be gathered at this celebration dinner. And if you're a believer, there's already a place set for you. When every Christian will finally be able to enjoy the blessings of God, and all those around them will finally be free of sin, completely comfortable and at ease for the first time ever. And so what we see is that death is actually the appetizer for a feast with Jesus. And so at the end of this setting, but remember that it should draw our minds to something else, something greater, a better supper, a better celebration. And at the close of this, meal is kind of coming to an end. Martha's probably starting to clean up the dishes, maybe making some bags to send people to take food home. When all of a sudden, there's a movement. And I believe every eye was on this woman. And I hope we can see this scene for the beauty that it is. In verse 3, it says, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard 
And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Several things to know. This was an expensive thing that she did. This, this fragrant oil came from the roots of a plant that came from India. And she had this. It was usually sealed in like this alabaster bottle. About 12 ounces. About the size of a Coke can. And Mary sits down at Jesus' feet and she begins to rub the oil on them. You have to know that in this day, in this time, in society, in the culture they are in, this was a very degrading thing to touch someone else's feet. In fact, if you were a teacher of a student that you could have do all kinds of things for you, it was against the law, against the custom to command that student to touch your feet. This act was reserved for servants and those with very little honor. I believe quietly, without saying a word, she makes her way to where Jesus is reclining at the table, his feet extended away, and all of a sudden she begins sitting down and rubbing and anointing Jesus with this oil. And I believe you could heard a verbal gasp at those sitting around that table at what she has done. But it gets even stranger for them. It says that Mary let down her hair and began wiping his feet. In this day and time, it was, it was unnatural, it was uncustomary for a woman to let her hair down in public, especially in the view of other men. But you know what I see is Mary didn't care. Now, isn't that a humbling scene? That she takes this ointment, she breaks it, she rubs it into his feet that people couldn't believe what she was doing. She then lets down her hair and begins wiping his feet with her hair. So I want us to see two things about this act. One, I want us to see that it is a picture of extravagant love. It told us that it was pure nard, meaning it's not an imitation. This isn't bottom shelf stuff. This is something that was prized. It said it was 300 denarius, what it will tell us. That's about a year's worth of wages to buy that one small bottle of oil. Now, she could have grabbed some less expensive stuff, but she chose one of infinite value. In fact, this could have been a family heirloom that they would have passed down from generation to generation, and it lands on her. Now, I don't know this for sure, but here's an interesting thought to think about what this might have been reserved for. In this day and time, many times if a woman held an asset of value like this, it would have been passed down from her family for one reason and one reason only. It would have been reserved for her dowry, her payment for marriage. If that is true, then this was a gift that was going to be saved for Mary's future husband. And if that is the case, you know what she is doing in this moment? She is depleting all of her potential for gaining a husband. And if that's true, then she was willing to even give that up because of the one that she was in the presence of. And so what you see, this had extreme economic value. It was extremely valuable in that way. I think it had sentimental value to her family. But I think for her, it was also a very practical value. But this gift and act was not just to honor the Lord. I think it is a complete demonstration of her committing her past, her present, and her future on who this man said he was. 
And Mary brings out the best, the most extravagant, most precious ointment of the day, and she pours every ounce on this man Jesus. So her act and gift in her way, I think, was yelling at the mountaintop that this man is worth it. That she is saying, Jesus is worth more than anything I have or could ever have. It was that extravagant. She's saying, I'm laying all on the line for this man. But another thing about this gift, not only is it an extravagant gift, it's pointing to another sacrifice. Just as this celebration dinner is going to point to the marriage supper of the Lamb, this act and gift is pointing to Jesus's of his death. This gift, this ointment could be used to cover a body that was decaying. In fact, they'd already done that for Lazarus. Many religious leaders were already making plans to kill Jesus. And from this point on, you're going to hear him talk more and more about his coming death. And that this was pointing to that. Because she's about to say, he's about to say, leave her alone. So Mary, in this humbling act, it's supposed to be seen against the background of the sacrificial death of Jesus. And I think everyone at this meal can see this as an act of love and commitment, except one person. One person's going to stand out, and he's not going to see this as an extravagant gift pointing to something even better. He's going to see it as an extravagant waste. Look at verse 4. He says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is the one, and in just a few weeks we're going to see, will betray this man for 30 pieces of silver. And he sees this as a lavish waste. In fact, he said, we should take it and help the poor. We're told this wasn't motivated out of love. It was motivated out of just a selfish ambition to, to pad his own pocket. But what happens next is an amazing scene where Jesus is going to stand up against Judas for this woman that just did this incredible act for him. In verse 7, And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you will not always have me. So I want us to see three kind of quick things. I want us to see Jesus coming to her defense. He says, Leave her alone, Judas. You have no idea what she is doing. This special act, this act of love and dedication. But Judas doesn't have eyes or heart to see this because he can only think about what's important to him. Well, the second thing that's important to see is that Jesus, he's not saying the poor don't matter. He is not a heartless man. In fact, he loves the poor more than anyone. But he's saying, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to love and to care for them. But my time is running out. He knows I'm only six days away. Mary's what she's doing. She's taking advantage of the time she has with Jesus. I mean, think about how differently we might live if, if we knew that time was coming for us. How we might seize the day more often. But she's taking advantage in this moment to show her love and devotion. She's seizing the moment to express this to Jesus. 
But I want us to see how Jesus is caring for Mary in a very powerful way with these words. So it says, leave her alone. Get back, Judas, so that she will keep it for the day of my burial. So the question is, what does he mean by it? That she will keep it for the day of my burial. One idea that it's talking about the oil, I don't think that's it. She's already broken that vessel and, and poured it on him. What I think he's doing, I think he's referring to this exact moment and what Mary has done, her actions, and this experience that she has just had. And I believe this for a couple of reasons. One, if you go and read those accounts in Matthew and Mark, something interesting happens. Judas speaks up, and it doesn't take long for the other disciples to jump on the bandwagon and start rebuking Mary for this action. So I think that shows us that Judas's mindset, it's contagious. It's infectious because many other disciples begin to follow his logic. The second reason is because Jesus picks the words carefully. He says, so that she may keep it for my day, for the day of my burial. See, he's already looking ahead. He knows this day is coming. And this is what we've seen over and over. Many people are following Jesus many times in massive crowds. He's going to do something. Many are going to say, man, I don't have a category for that. And they go home. Or he's going to say something like, you know what, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're going, man, I can't get behind that. And they're going to go home. Many things are going to happen. Jesus sometimes will heal, sometimes he won't. And many people are going to see their faith crumble, or at least the faith they think they have. And I believe Jesus is looking into Mary and her experience and her actions And he is fighting for her in this moment because he does not want her to fall away for the moment that's about to come. Because in their minds, Jesus is going to go to the cross eventually when he does. And when he dies to death, many are going to turn away because they're going to say, if he truly would have been the Son of God, there's no way he would have allowed this to happen. If he was the Son of God, he could have come down off that cross or called legions of angels to come to his defense. But he's not going to do it in many People will fall away. So Jesus is saying, leave Mary alone. I do not want her to be swayed by your pride and your selfishness and your greed. Because Jesus knows when he dies on the cross, it will cause many to question their faith and commitment to him. And Jesus wants Mary to hold on. He wants her to remember this experience right here when it gets hard and it gets difficult. Jesus wants her to hold on to what she is thinking and experiencing and feeling and believing in this moment. Because he knows that her belief and commitment to him are about to be challenged in a very real way. And he says, Judas, leave her alone. I want her to remember this moment right here. And so here's what we see. Judas, he only sees what benefits him. He only sees with those eyes, Mary on the other hand, she's laying everything that she has or ever will have down at his feet. And she places her past, her present, and her future identity on Jesus. If I don't have a husband, that's okay. If I don't have a future, that's okay. She's laying it all down. So then John is going to give us one final scene that we'll see today. Beginning in verse 9. It says, when the crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, meaning in Bethany, they came the short distance, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Notice how far they've come. Because of the account, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So because of who Jesus is and what he has done, and because Lazarus is a walking example of that, they now want to murder Jesus and Lazarus. And why? Because he is a threat to everything that they love. They love their power, their influence, their prestige, and their freedom. And Jesus and Lazarus now are a threat to that. And they are willing to battle and to fight for what they love the most. So here's what I want us to see from this scene in John 12. Naturally, we are drawn to fight and to protect and to sacrifice what we love the most. Our natural instinct is to fight and protect and to sacrifice for ourselves because that is the most important thing to us. It's unnatural because of sin to put others first and to love others more than ourselves. But we see Mary, she's the unnatural one in this state. But you see Judas and the religious leaders. So let me kind of make maybe some application for what this might apply to us today. You see, each and every day, we're going to face this battle in numerous opportunities, maybe even today. But I promise you, in this week, you will have an experience where I hope these words will come into your mind. In this moment, whether I'm at home or at school or at work, I can either fight for myself or I can sacrifice for others. So the first one, I would call it seeing Jesus fully. So Mary and Judas, they force us to take a hard look at ourselves. If we really want to see Jesus for who he is, the almighty, the infinite God of the universe who came to earth and took on our humanity and died a brutal death in the place of rebellious creatures. If we see Jesus as the all-satisfying God who promises to give us peace and blessing and satisfaction in himself, as Mary did, if we can get that, That is the only way to combat selfishness and pride and greed. The only way is to begin seeing Jesus more fully. The only way to deal with something that you love is to love something else greater. That is the only way. You know, I used to love matchbox cars. Love them with everything. Until I discovered army men. And I used to love army men until I discovered firecrackers. And the only thing that replaced that love was finding something that I loved more. The only way to battle the love of yourself is to love someone more, and his name is Jesus. And you can fight for yourself or you can sacrifice for others. But here's another one. When was the last time you demonstrated an extravagant sacrifice for Jesus? I'm talking something that caused the room to gasp And what are they doing? Why would they do that? What would that look like for us? Well, I really don't know. We can't copy Mary, and I don't think there's this like simple one-size-fits-all answer. But here's what we see. She knew Jesus, and she loved him. And she was willing to demonstrate her love and faith and devotion to Jesus in front of other people, and she did not care what they thought even if it caused humiliation and degrading and awe and shock. And even everybody else in that room was probably saying, what is wrong with her? 
She was willing to demonstrate her love. So this week, man, you may have a way to demonstrate your love and faith and devotion to Christ in a very powerful way. And you may want to shrink back for what people might think, but in that moment, you can either fight for yourself or you can sacrifice for others. But here's a real personal one. I promise you, you're going to have this experience in some way, somehow. We will all have experiences this week where we're offended. We will have gotten our feelings hurt. Our pride might be threatened. We might feel wronged, maybe left out, misunderstood. Something is going to happen. It could be with a spouse. It could be with your children, a boss, a coworker. It could be someone in this room. It could be a friend at school. And in those moments, you know what happens most naturally? In those moments when we feel threatened, we feel neglected, or we feel passed over, or we get our feelings hurt, man, we want to fight for ourselves. But being able to forgive and to give the benefit of the doubt and to be able to go and to be the bigger person or maybe try to clear up the misunderstanding, being able to do those things even when no one asks us to. When we forgive, we're not even asked to be forgiven. When we know we've been passed over or neglected and we forgive that without somebody even saying, I'm sorry. You know what that is doing? That is sacrificing for others. Because in any relationship, when there's a hurt and there's a pain, when both parties forgive, then what you're both doing, you're both saying, okay, I'll own my part. But when you're offended and you're hurt and you forgive, whether they ask or not, you are choosing to bear that hurt and that pain that that other person has caused. Because naturally, we want them to pay. We want to be righted. We want the record to be set straight. So this week, look for those moments. I promise you they're going to happen. So when you feel offended or you feel hurt, you can fight for yourself in that moment or you can sacrifice for others. And one honors Christ and one doesn't. So this week, look for those moments that are going to happen. You can say, I can fight for myself in this moment. But in this moment, Lord, help me to love you more than myself. And then you'll be able to sacrifice for others. So what I'd like us to do is to think about these things. I'd like us to think about Jesus, the one that fought for us rather than himself. That he laid it all down. Instead of fighting for himself, he chose to sacrifice for others. And so what we're going to do this morning, we want to observe communion. We don't want to participate in this. You know, the church was given two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we are to faithfully do these. So the Lord's Supper is a time for remembrance. When we're to remember Christ's body that was given for us and his blood that was shared for us. In the moment that he could have fought for himself, but he chose to sacrifice for others. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of Christ's love for us. And so when you take these elements this morning, they're to be a reminder that you are personally and also collectively loved by Christ. But in this moment of taking the Lord's Supper, it should do something else. I think just in that moment that Jesus fought for Mary's faith, in this moment, Jesus is fighting for yours. In this moment... It's to confirm your faith in Christ because when you take that bread and you take that juice, you are saying, I need you, Jesus. I trust in you even when my faith is frail. 
I need you and I trust in you. I'm trusting you to forgive my sins, to give me life and health for my soul. And it's only through Christ's broken body and shed blood that I can ever find any peace. So each and every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming over and over and over again that He is the one and that our sins are a part of the need for what we are going to take and cause us to think about in a deep way His sacrifice and His death. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.